Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. For the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You got your ass, baby. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A. Trunk. Hey everybody, it's Eddie Trunk and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New episodes every Thursday on all your major podcast platforms, totally free. Be sure to subscribe so you do not miss an episode. And uh, be sure to catch all the great newsmaking rock interviews right here on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Appreciate you checking it out. Be sure to follow me on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook page. EddieTrunk.com is the website. A lot of good stuff coming up, including going to be hosting, just added to my schedule, a performance by Last in Line that will be happening in Las Vegas on April 1st to celebrate the release of their new album. That's happening at the Hard Rock Cafe on the Strip in Vegas. If you happen to be in that area on April 1st, come join us. Should be a great time. The band will be on my Sirius XM radio show as well the day before And that should be a lot of fun, too. We may make that a public broadcast, so keep an eye on my socials. Keep an ear on my radio show. We'll let you know about that also. Also coming to Texas, hope to see you March 16th, the Guitar Sanctuary in McKinney, doing my speaking Q&A show. The Winery Dogs will be there with me as my guests, and then they play the next night in Dallas, March 17th at Amplified Live. I'll be hosting that one, as well as March 19th in Houston, And that one is at Warehouse Live. Looking forward to hosting some shows with my buds, the Winery Dogs in Texas, Houston and Dallas, and of course, doing my own speaking Q&A show. I hope you guys come out and join us. Should be a lot of fun. All right. So as I tell you guys every week, all the interviews you hear on the Eddie Trunk podcast all originated on my Sirius XM radio show, that show is Trunk Nation. Be sure to check it out Monday through Friday, live 3 to 5 Eastern Time, Faction Talk Channel 103, or anytime on demand on the Sirius XM app. As I tell you all the time, if you're only listening to this podcast, 
You're only getting a tiny taste of what I do five days a week on the radio. So please be sure to check out the, uh, uh, the, uh, show every day if you're in the U.S. and Canada and you have Sirius XM. And if you don't, come on board and join us. As a matter of fact, I was talking to my uh, my friend Brent Fitz the other day who plays in Slash's band, and he was telling me how he listens to the podcast. And I said, I thought you had Sirius XM. And he said, yeah, I do. I said, well, why do you listen to the podcast? He goes, oh, I don't know. I just go on Spotify or whatever, and it's there, and I just listen that way. I go, but you realize you're only getting one show instead of five. Just listen on the app. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess that's a good point. <laughs> so thank you Fitzy for listening because I know he does and I thank everybody who listens to the podcast but uh even people who have Sirius XM haven't figured this all out so it's really simple if you have Sirius XM or you get a subscription you'll hear the show every day live or on demand on the app really simple and of course the podcast is for really predominantly those that don't have the service or can't get it outside of the US or Canada. So whatever you listen to, however, thank you. Obviously, uh, you know, people listen in different ways, but important to clarify that all the time. All right, my interview today is with an author named Steve Rosen. Steve Rosen befriended Eddie Van Halen at a very, very early point in Eddie Van Halen's career, just before his first album came out. Steve was a writer for various guitar magazines at the time, met Eddie at a cheap trick show at the Whiskey, and he has now put out a book that is a massive 600-page book transcribing his interviews with Eddie Van Halen over a couple of decades. It is an amazing book. Uh, that has some incredible insights in it. And uh, I, I, when I talked to Steve for this interview, I only had read half of the book, and I'm still only at the halfway point. So it's a very, very big undertaking, but if you're a Van Halen fan, the book is incredible. I'm going to let Steve tell you about it and his, his story and his interactions with Eddie Van Halen, why he wrote this book, uh, disclosing off-the-record stuff in the book and how he frames that. So don't miss this. You're going to love it, especially if you're a Van Halen fan. Steve Rosen talking about his more than 20-year friendship, writing and covering Eddie Van Halen on what was supposed to be an autobiography that he was commissioned to write originally for EVH. Here it is. Uh, you're going to love this. Any Van Halen fan, this is great stuff. Check it out on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so I mentioned that I've had a chance to read a good portion of this book thanks to a nine-and-a-half-hour flight ordeal getting from New Jersey to Vegas last night. I got to read more of it than I uh, expected. And the book is called Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen, written by Steve Rosen. And Steve joins us now live on Trunk Nation to discuss this book. Steve, how are you? Good to meet you over the phone. Oh, I'm so great, Eddie. It's so cool to be here, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You know, before we get into the book and and uh, what I've been able to take in on it, which is a good amount, but as I told you leading into this, for for those that have not seen your book, it is encyclopedia thickness. <laughs> it's uh, it six, almost, just about 600 pages, and it's mostly text, so it's a lot. So it's going to take me a little time to finish it off, but... I did get to get at least through 50% of it. And before we talk about some stuff I picked out as uh, from what I did read of the book, can you give my audience a little bit of your background uh, as, a, as a writer, what, how you started and uh, what you first started doing, writing in guitar magazines, right? Uh, that, that, that's correct. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll try to give you the, uh, the capsule version here. Um, uh, actually, like you, uh, I actually began writing uh, for my high school newspaper. I was doing live reviews. I guess you were doing record re- reviews. Um, but that's where I got the bug, man. I, 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 loved, I loved writing. I loved music. I played guitar. And I thought, how can I bring all this together? So I, I just started um, sort of going to shows and, and writing live reviews and sending them to magazines. And, of course, everybody... Uh, shut me down. They said, no, no, we're not interested. I persevered. I uh, got a couple cu- couple uh, little reviews printed in some local uh, newspapers. One was called the LA Free Press, which is kind of like an alternative press back in the 70s. Actually, a pretty cool newspaper. And I kept writing, and, and I got some stuff in Cream and Circus, you know, and Raves, all those kind of those, uh, you know, metal mags in the day. And then I, I, I reached out and, and I sort of became kind of the, the darling little new kid on the block for, for Guitar Player Magazine, was able to interview just a, a ton of people in the 70s, uh, Richie Blackmore and John McLaughlin and Frank Zappa, uh, Jimmy Page, Kiss, um, just a bunch of amazing um, guitar players. And then it, it grew from there. I got some things in Rolling Stone. And um, started writing for some uh, Japanese and European magazines, wrote some books along the way, uh, wrote a book on, uh, actually, my first book was on Jeff Beck, actually, uh, which actually just came out in Japan in 77. It was never released in English. Wrote a book oh, wow. on Free and Bad Company. Yeah. I wrote a book on um, Ozzy and Sabbath, wrote a, wrote a book on Prince a book on Springsteen, I wrote a very cool book on Randy Rhodes. And it just grew from there. You know, you just reach out, you keep kind of climbing the ladder. 
And, um, yeah, man, that's how, you know, starting as a, a, a the new kid on the block, kind of 50 years later, I was, uh, I was still kind of a, a rock and roll journalist. Um, and really, I, I feel that it is all kind of capped off by, uh, you know, the uh, Tone Chaser book. So. so you so you are obviously a L.A. guy, Southern California guy, and you, you're part of that whole scene. And as you said, you had a bunch of history as a journalist writing and interviewing all these people you mentioned and being and being a guitar fan and a lot of your stuff being guitar centric. I'm curious, right. when did you first hear and I know you talk about this a little bit in the book, but being a, a guy from Southern California in the press, what was your first awareness of a guy named Eddie Van Halen was it the were you hip to the backyard parties they were doing before they were signed or did you really first hear of him and what he was doing when the first record came out I mean that's a really good question Eddie I wish I had a definitive answer for you no I I um I mean I may have heard of Van Halen uh, you know, this band from Pasadena, and I may have heard peripherally about the backyard parties, but but I had no idea what they were. I had no idea what the band sounded like, and I had no idea what this guy, Eddie Van Halen, played like. Um, being part of that Southern California kind of rock and roll journalism circuit, certainly Van Halen were up there on the radar, but for some weird inexplicable reason i never saw the band play i never saw them at the whiskey i never saw them at the starwood and the reason that was so freaking odd man was because i was at those places weekly i mean i'd be at the whiskey four nights a week um you know on on, on record company tabs and 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 singing bands and and uh the starwood i was there all the time you know would see y and t were kind of like the house band and um uh, you know, just a, a, a ton of bands that were playing it. But for some reason, I, I never saw Van Halen. Um, I had certainly heard of Van Halen uh, again by that time. Um, they were up on everybody's radar. Um, you know, they were this kind of this local band uh, that had made good. They, they were kind of like the first band out of uh, the Sunset Strip scene to land a, a record deal, a major record deal on Warner's. So uh, they were they were um, uh, up on everybody's radar because of that. But no, man, I, I had never seen them before I met and spoke to Edward that first night in June 1977. It was weird. You, that I is weird because you're in you're already in the guitar circles like you're a, you're covering that scene. You're there physically in Southern California. You're already doing some writing. You, like you said, you're being. Those are the days when journalists and even radio people like myself, you, I mean, I was, I came a little after that, but you know, you were actually taken care of and people yeah. actually did stuff for you and schmoozed you. Uh, now you yeah. got to fight to get, I got to fight to get a physical copy of something, but um, it's a, it was a different world back then. So that's really, that's really interesting. And you know, I'm wondering, Steve, one of the things I took from the book, there's so much in your book. And again, I've not read it all, but there's so much, but I remember there's one part, as I was going through it last night where Eddie Van Halen says that he, they didn't really consider themselves. And he always bristled at the fact that when people called Van Halen an LA band, 
because yeah. he said, you know, I was, we're from Pasadena, man. He goes, that was, yeah, sure. We went down there to do Gazaris and do the whiskey and do the Starwood. He said, but they, they never felt really an alliance at least at that time with that scene in LA, they considered themselves more like Pasadena. Now for those that don't know all the logistics of Southern California, and I don't, that even though it's not mileage wise, not that far, I imagine what he probably meant by that. It was, it was a whole different world, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it, exactly. And yeah, geographically Pasadena was, uh, I don't know, 35 minutes from Hollywood, but, but no, you're right. I, I, I believe he was speaking more musically being part of that, you know, that sunset strip scene. And I remember talking to Ed once and, and, and it may be in the book, you know, did he feel any kinship with those kinds of bands? Um, you know, Motley Crue and, and Rat and, and, and Doc and kind of those other bands that were playing the strip, um, you, you know, those, those kinds of metal bands, those guitar players. And he did not. Um, he said he didn't feel akin to that at all. And in fact, I remember once um, uh, I did actually the first cover story I did for Guitar World magazine in 84 um, uh, I, 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 I was talking to Edward about um, kind of heavy metal bands. And, and he, again, he bristled um, at the idea that, that somebody would call them a, a heavy metal band. Um, I, I think he almost took it as an insult. But no, he never, never felt part of that, um, that Sunset Strip thing or the hair thing. Um, he, he felt separate from that somehow. Um, interesting, actually. Yeah, it is. And, and I understand that. I mean, I never thought of, I never thought of, um, Van Halen as a metal band either. I mean, I think metal became such a broad umbrella at one point. I was just thought of them as a hard rock band. Um, so, so, so Steve getting into this, so you take us through, you, you weren't there at the parties and all the early stuff, but take us through the first, cause you do talk about this in the book, the first time you met him, the circumstances in meeting him, because that initial meeting, uh, his I think the first record was out or just about to come out. And famously, you say in the book, you, which you can't believe at this point, and if, you know, I, I understand that yeah. when you first heard the first record, you didn't get what all the fuss was about. Like, you didn't connect with it immediately. And then it hit you like a ton of bricks, what was going on. But take me through those that that earliest period for you with your connection to him and relationship to him and meeting him. Where did it happen? How did it happen? Man, you know, that that really, really early, that 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 introductory, the honeymoon period um, was really amazing. I mean, so it's a uh, it's a Friday night, uh, June 1977. Cheap Trick is playing the whiskey. They're recording a live record. Not, not, not Budokan, of course. It was um, Four Nights at the Whiskey or Five Nights. Actually, I think that record just came out. Just um, came out. I literally just, it just was released as a special edition. Two days, two shows a day, four shows. I literally just got it. I read that oh, in the book and I was like, holy shit, that's the show you were at with Eddie. And that's the show Eddie, Eddie Van Halen was in that audience, basically. That's exactly right. And what was so unbelievable, and you talk about synchronicity and that kind of thing. I mentioned earlier that I used to go to the whiskey a lot and I was at the Starwood a lot. Um, and by 77, I mean, I wasn't jaded, but I mean, I've been writing for four years. 
I'd been to the whiskey a lot. I'd seen a ton of bands. And honestly, to go out to the whiskey to, to see another band, it was like, oh, I, I don't really want to go see them. And, you know, but, but seeing Cheap Trick record a live record, that was worth going to see. So I'm there with my brother Mick, and we're downstairs, and we're waiting for Cheap Trick to come on. And I feel a tap on my shoulder, and it's my friend Michelle Meyer. Michelle was the uh, booker for the whiskey, and she also booked some other clubs around Tom, town. Um, Madame Wong's East and West, which were two pretty famous punk bands, uh, I'm sorry, uh, punk clubs at the time. I had a band, and uh, never having heard the band because we just got along, she booked my band into these clubs. So I was forever indebted to Michelle. So she comes up to me, says, listen, there's this guy upstairs. You have to meet him. He's Godhead. And again, I write about it in the book, but Michelle didn't use that term loosely. For her to call somebody Godhead meant this was some supernatural being. This was somebody more than just a guitar player. She knew that I was heavy into the guitar player thing. I was writing for Guitar Player Magazine. I was interviewing those kinds of people. So, so if she thought that I needed to meet this guy, then, you know, I, I was there. So we walk upstairs to one of the dressing rooms, and the whiskey dressing rooms are like, uh, I, I mean, they're like garbage dumps. I mean, there's, you know, the floor is littered in, you know, empty beer cans and cups and cigarette butts. And, you know, there's writing on the walls, all the bands that have played there. And over in the corner, you know, there's this guy standing there. And I'm trying to wrap my bank my brain i'm pretty positive i i recognized who this was again i'd never seen the band but certainly i had seen posters or flyers um you know there really weren't any articles in magazines but but somehow i i thought i had recognized him anyway she she walks walks me over and um uh says uh you know steve rosen um eddie van halen eddie van halen steve rosen you know and and, and calls him Godhead and he smiles, which meant that he, he understood what the, uh, what the compliment meant as well. And man, you know, my brother described it best. It was just like two friends meeting and hanging out. It was just, it, it was as if the conversation had begun somewhere earlier in time and we were just picking it up. I, I you know, cream and Clapton and purple and, and Blackmore. I mean, I love that stuff. That's the stuff I was listening to before I became a writer. I knew a lot about those bands. I mean, I listened a lot to their music, you know. As a, you know, a, a would-be guitar player, I mean, I tried to learn, um, you know, Clapton licks and, and, and Deep Purple riffs. So whenever I would meet somebody and they say, yeah, man, you know, and they bring up Purple or Cream or Clapton, if they said something that was sort of, substandard in terms of what I thought their knowledge should be. I was like dismissive. It's like, come on, man, you don't know anything. You know what I mean? If there was like some obvious comment about Clapton or Blackmore, it's like, I'd think, oh, they don't really know much. But Ed really knew, man. He understood. He understood musically what they were doing far more than I did. So it was an instant connection. There was none of those strange silences, you know, and oh my God, what am I going to talk to you next to this guy? And oh, I, I can't wait to get out here. And I, I, I really, really liked the guy, you know, and, and I think he really liked me. And that's why at the end of the conversation, and that's, it's hard to remember how long that lasts. It could have been a half hour, it could have been an hour. Um, 
um, you know, he, he runs out of the room. I'm thinking, whoa, what, you know, what's going on? Anyway, he comes back, you know, he's got a piece of paper or he's got a pen, pencil, and he finds a little piece of paper on the, on the floor and he writes something on, he hands it to me and it's his phone number. He goes, man, I, you know, hope we can talk again. I hope we meet again. And I was just blown away. I mean, I, I had interviewed a lot of guitar players by that time. Um, uh, you know, I'd actually just interviewed uh, Richie Blackmore. I, I'd interviewed um, uh, Joe Walsh, John McLaughlin, and John Entwistle, um, you know, Wishbone Ash. Um, and none of them ever gave me a phone number after meeting them one time. So I just thought that was unbelievably cool. And and then the first time, you know, I, I interviewed him on the phone w- was just a few months later. Um, um, oh, oh, I, I'm sorry. I want to get back to, to your point. So this is 77. This is June. Their first record doesn't come out until February 78. I had not heard the record. Nobody had heard the record, as you mentioned. And I wasn't going to write that in a book. I was going to say, oh, my God, I was, I was, you know, knocked out when I heard that. I thought that was the greatest thing I'd ever heard, man. But, you know, I wasn't going to lie. And um, it, it just it just didn't strike me. I just I couldn't get it. And, and I think about it more and I may have touched on it. My heroes, again, were Jeff Beck and Clapton and Blackmore and Jimi Hendrix. And I thought somehow if, if, if I embrace this guy as this unbelievable guitar player and someone as good as everyone else thinks, does that, does that you know, strike the death knell for my guitar heroes? Is that, is that the end of all that great English classic rock that I love? And I, I knew that was a snobbish way to think of it, but I thought that was part of it. And I think the other part was this absolute, ultimate, supreme jealousy about, oh my God, this guy was in a local rock and roll band and they just got a deal on Warners. Not that I was anywhere near as good as he was. I don't mean to imply that, but just the fact that I was playing around in bands and like my my wish of all time was to get some little record deal or you know even to play the whiskey. So it was all those things when I heard that record. Yeah, and no, out, and that... And that's you're being yeah you're being very uh, honest about where you were at at that point your thoughts that's a really interesting part about as a fan in you that again you're coming from Clapton and Beck and Blackmore and all these guys you loved and now this guy Eddie Van Halen this new kid this new guy that's like supposed to turn everything on its head well that might extinguish those guys and and look I I understand that. Uh, you not get like like it's easy for us to sit here and talk about the first Van Halen album being the brilliant record that it is in retrospect. But I understand at the time probably not being able to fully process it because, uh, you know, I, I was the first one of the first people to ever hear and play Metallica on the radio in 83. Wow. And people say to me all the time, you know, wow, what was that like? And I was like, man, I'd love to sit here and tell you that I heard the future and I heard a a band that was going to be playing stadiums in 40 years and all of that. I I didn't know what I heard. It sounded like a train wreck to me. I couldn't decipher it because I was coming from being a Kiss fan, an Aerosmith fan, a Van Halen fan. I was into like straight up hard rock. I didn't know what this was. It was like a whole different thing. So when you're, you're right at the forefront of a whole scene change, it can take a while before it connects with you. And and so I, as, as crazy as it is in retrospect to think you didn't get the first album when you first heard it, I, I can, I can kind of understand that, you know, this is a crazy story and you talk a lot in the book or Eddie does through your interviews 
about Gene Simmons and the role he played early on with Van Halen. And yeah. you want to hear a crazy story, Steve. I'm a kid in 78. I would have been 13. I was only into Kiss initially. Uh, there were no other bands to me at that age and that mentality. And the reason I ordered the first Van Halen record when it came out from the Columbia House Record Club. And the yeah. reason why I did, and this sounds beyond silly, but being such a Kiss fan, I had heard or read somewhere that Gene was involved early on. And someone told me that Gene's name was the first one listed in the thank yous on the back of the record. And all I needed at 13 years old was an affiliation with a member of Kiss with another band. And I got to check the band out. So, so the fact that Gene's name was in the thank yous was my catalyst for getting the record. And I remember like it was yesterday putting it on and hearing running with the devil and then eruption. And I'm like, this is a whole different world than kiss, you know? So it, yeah. it wasn't like this immediate thing to me either. So you, you got to put yourself in that time and place to really understand, you know, what, what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. I love that story, Eddie. And the, and the other side of that is yes, besides hearing all those bands, you know, and listening to the tooth record and, and, you know, are you experienced and, um, you know, Machine had those kinds of records. I had seen all of those bands live. You, you know, I saw Hendrix twice, and I, I saw Cream, and I saw Blind Faith, and I saw The Who in 66, um, you know, and I saw Free. So I saw all these guitar players that I love performing live. So the bar that I set, you know, um, you, you know, consciously or not, when I was hearing that first Van Halen record was very high. It's like, you better fucking blow me off the rails, man, because I saw Jeff Beck with Rod Stewart in 68 at the, you know, the, the Shrine Auditorium. So, yeah, man, the, the bar was set high. And, and um, yes, now it sounds funny, us, us re relating those stories. But back in the day, it, it, um, it, it took a little bit of doing to, to, embrace, to embrace that stuff initially, for sure. Yeah. So Steve, I could talk to you forever about the book because there's so much in it. And, and, and maybe when I finish it off, we'll talk some more because I have not finished it. I'm probably 50% through, but I, I, as I was reading through some of these interviews, I cherry picked some notes that I want to ask you about. But before that, I guess just in the overview, just for the, the listener right now, so they understand the book, the book is, as I said, about 600 pages. It's called Tone Chaser. And basically, uh, the, for the audience, the, the gist of this, from what I understood going through the book, is that after meeting Eddie, after befriending him, you guys hung out, you jammed together, he confided in you, you recorded a ton of interviews with him that you have the tapes of, you even hung out. There's a story about you guys going a double date. With it or, or and going and then there's a story you took him to see Rainbow, which was an interesting story in the book. Yeah, and then you went to the after party. Blackmore had had blown him off. He blew him off kind of again. Uh, there, there's so much in here. Um, but just in a, tell people that are listening what this book is because what it really is is the countless interviews you did with Eddie that you had recorded that you've then transcribed. Some of these were printed. Some of them were partially printed. And then you put your observations now around those interviews, looking back on them. Do I have that right? Would that be the best way to describe what your book is? 
Man, you just, you nailed it, Eddie. I mean, it's really, uh, you know, somebody looking from the outside at, at the book almost is able to, uh, you know, uh, encapsulate it uh, better than me. Um, no, that's exactly what it was. So, so I met Eddie in 77. Um, you, you know, we hung out off and on until 2003. I interviewed him many, many, many times. And um, the preponderance of those interviews um, were never used. They were just conversations. Um, uh, a lot of them I call the twilight tapes. They were of a more personal nature. And yes, the, the, the book was, was really just a, a way for me to sort of bring the, the Van Halen fan um, into this inner world, this, this, you know, these moments that I experienced for, for so many years um, by, by, yeah, going back to my interviews, um, uh, transcribing them in full. And then what I thought could be interesting, and I never, ever read it done before, is, you know, instead of just, well, here's the interview, and, and what, do you, what do you think, reader? Have you learned anything new? Well, I hope you have, but here's my thought. Here's what I see when I transcribe this interview 40 years after I first did it. And this is what Edward sounded like on the tape. And what Ed was talking about this, he was really talking about that. So I was trying to be like this omniscient voice looking down on the reader and saying, hey, you know, you're, you're reading the interview, but this is me trying to give you a little bit more insight. But everything you said, Eddie, um, was true. There are a lot of, you know, more personal kinds of things that we spoke about. And I, I battled back and forth for a long time, man, over the course of 14 months that it took me to write it. Do I include this stuff? Do I not include this? But at the end of the day, I, I, I said to myself, and not trying to, to adopt any kind of holier-than-thou posture, but I thought it has to be an honest book, and so I have to put all of this stuff in there, you know. And, and Ed was a human being, and not everything is, is pretty and, and beautiful, um, you know, and, and I present myself in the same way. I mean, I, I don't come off so, so perfectly in a lot of these situations. It, it, it's, it, it's just the most honest book that I possibly could have written. Um, you, you know, I had no agenda. Um, I really just wanted people to, to have that experience who weren't there, what it was like hanging out with, with the greatest guitar player on the planet, um, you know, kind of before and after he became this, this legend. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you about that. And there's a few specifics I want to ask you about in the book, just about guitar players and things that I, that I picked out. But one thing about what you just talked about, um, the, the, there are moments throughout these interviews where he uh, opens up to you. And, and look, there's been a lot of there's, – there's a few things here the way I see it. The, the whole Van Halen camp organization – has for decades been notoriously shut down, quiet, private, etc., and right to the even to the point of releasing music, as we know. I mean, there's the archives and box sets, and there's been a bunch of different Van Halen books that have come out that have been written. Uh, people who knew Eddie, people that didn't know Eddie. There's a lot out there, but what I'm curious about is you had this friendship with him. You had this th that went on. There are moments, and you write this in the book during these interviews where he tells you during the interview, turn the tape off or don't print that or I want to see this before it goes out. And now you are basically uh, bringing these interviews out 
uncensored and, you know, bringing that all out to the public. And of course, we know tragically, sadly, he's no longer with us. How do you frame that? Um, do you think, do, do you feel like you were breaching any confidences uh, and trust, even though he's no longer there by doing that? Like you say you wrestled with it. Explain the the point of doing that and, you know, why you felt it was okay to do now and that struggle of including that stuff, which he clearly says should be off the record. I mean, that's a really excellent question. And, and I had to ponder what you're talking about for a very long time. So I, I think the first and most important uh, point to remember is, so yeah, I, I would, Eddie and I were talking and, and, and he'd be talking about the band or, you know, the, a producer or a manager or something. And he'd say, you know, don't print this or, um, you know, don't use that or, uh, yeah, yeah. Let me read it. And 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 in answer to that question, honestly, I never did let him read anything that I wrote. Um, um, uh, I I never offered, and he never asked. However, um, uh, just to be upfront, I never ever printed one word that he said don't print. So my my original point: you have to understand that when Eddie was telling me uh, not to print this, don't use that. Um, it was in that moment. So he may have been talking about, uh, I, you, you know, uh, the birds in the sky in 1983, when when the birds in the sky in 1983 was a critical thing to talk about. Had I printed that in, in an article, in a story for Guitar World or one of the many European or Japanese magazines I was writing for, that could have been disastrous. One... I'm certain he would have come screaming at me, and rightly so. Two, I mean, you know, some of those things, I mean, I mean, could have really caused major problems, perhaps, within the band, with the management, with the label, his side projects. So you have to take that all in context, that when he said those things, you know, it could have been, you know, right around the time when an, al- when an album was being released. That's why it was so critical for him to say, don't print that. And I never did. Fast forward uh, uh, 2003, um, 17 years later, now a lot of those things that he told me don't print, not not all of it, but some of it, um, is sort of common knowledge. And, and we know the relationship he had with Dave and with Mike and with his management and, and the label. Um, and the pressures on him, you know, that's now sort of common knowledge. Um, well, so- it's come out. It's come out. I understand what you're saying in that regard, because when and to me, that was a fascinating part about the book. And, and you know, I still don't know how I feel about, you know, you, you know, you would know better than I because you knew him. I did not know Eddie. I met him once. and I interviewed him once. And that's another story. But I I would never say I knew him. But you knew how he would feel about this coming out now. But the thing that I think is interesting is of the interviews in your book that I read that you did with him, all the times that he said, don't print this or no, why am I talking about this? Like he would, he couldn't help himself to talk about it, but he was like self-editing himself. And what's funny is 
all of that stuff now in 2020, 2021, 22, through other books, through other interviews, it's all pretty much common knowledge. What I found fascinating about it in your book is the time that he was saying it. So, you know, he went on, I don't know, he did an interview maybe with Howard Stern and said stuff that people couldn't believe that he said. But here he is telling you it 20, 30 years later, or earlier rather. So in that context, we know how long this was kind of dwelling on him. Like the stuff about the only that, that Roth couldn't sing and couldn't hit these notes. And the only reason why Roth was in the band was because he had a PA and they were tired of renting a PA. Well, Ted Templeman's book, he says, Templeman's book says that too. So it's not like it's uncorroborated stuff. Uh, the stuff with Michael Anthony, which he had a very conflicted relationship with and didn't really feel Michael pulled his weight. Uh, there, there's been other interviews that Eddie came out. It was controversial where he said, I had to show Michael what to, to play. That is stuff that Eddie said later in life. But you have him saying it in the moment when that was actually happening. So it's, it's really timeline here, I think, is a really important consideration. Exactly. No, you hit it exactly. And that's why context is critical. And, and one other thing um, I, wanted to, I wanted to note here. So uh, you're reading the book, you're reading the interviews, and, and you're reading Eddie saying, don't print this, don't use that. I included those comments. If I wanted to, I could have edited those out, and right. no one would have known otherwise. You know what I mean? So I put those in there to show how unbelievably honest and upfront I was trying to be, and not that I was trying to be controversial or you know, trying to reveal a secret that, that he didn't want revealed. It, it, it was nothing like that. It, it was exactly the opposite. You know, I was, I, 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 I kept those secrets, if you want to call them that, you, you know, for 17 years. And even at the point I, w I was writing the book, I thought, mm, do I, you know, do I leave that stuff out? But as you mentioned, a lot of that stuff was, um, you know, it's sort of been chronicled in other books. Uh, to your point, what I find really interesting is the stuff in the Twilight tapes where he doesn't really say, don't use this. That's the stuff to me that's like extraordinarily personal and sort of revealing. But he never, at least I can't remember him saying, don't use that or, or don't print that, you know. And to me, that's that's the really personal stuff. Well, that, and the know. other part of this that we're leaving out that it's important for the audience to know that I forgot to mention is that you, this was all done, you had had an agreement with him to write and be his biographer. Now that never, end, I don't know how it ends because I haven't read the book, that didn't come fully to fruition. But the other thing was, and, and it's kind of eerie because even in some of these interviews, he references like, well, when I'm dead or whatever. But I know. You, you, had a, you had had a, a framework with him and you even have in the book scans of the document and the agreement to write his autobiography. So in some ways, him telling you that and telling you not to, to print it then was in at that time, you know, 79, 80. You're right. I mean, it was a different time. Uh, it could have done major damage to the band, the brand, whatever. But now in the world we're in now where we see people changing members every other week and no original members in bands and all of that. It's, it's a different lens. So he may have also been saying this stuff to you in that way to say, hey, 
I want to put it on the record because you're going to write my autobiography one day, but don't do anything with it now. And as you said, you sat on it until now. You know, man, that's the first time I ever thought about that. That is a really excellent point. Yes. Um, uh, I was hanging out with Ed, you know, I, 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 we had a relationship, a friendship for a few years. You know, I thought to myself, someone's going to write a book on this guy. I want to be the guy. I asked him, he said, yes, you saw that simple little contract. So from that point forward, I was sort of in, you know, autobiography or biography mode. And so I, I tried to record all that stuff. So you're right for him to say that. I mean, honestly, Eddie, I never thought about it. He was probably referencing, yeah, don't put this in the book right now. Or, um, um, yeah, leave, because leave because out. he because like Steve, him. he himself said some of this stuff later in life, like he, publicly, whether it was on Stern or other interviews. We all yeah. remember there was those inflammatory things. I remember Sammy Hagar went crazy at him because he took some pub- public sh- public shots at Mike. Well, in your book, he's taking those same kind of veiled shots back in 1980. So it's yeah. a consistency throughout. It's just when did it come out? And eventually he went public with this st- some of this stuff himself. Um, just in the interest of time, there's some Van Halen geeky stuff I got to ask you about that sure. I never... I never knew, and I'm, I'm sure there will be more once I finish this off. But I did not know, and, and I'm not a guitar player, but I'm obviously a huge guitar fan. But yeah. you get there's a lot in here for guitar players about how he made his guitars, his amps, the equipment, the, you know, the, the stuff he told you about all that from a guitar-centric point of view is really, even not being a guitar player, it was fascinating how he worked on his instruments and the technology side of what he did but i never when you talk to him and talked to him about his influence he talks about cream he talks about some of these people but i never put together the blackmore thing and there's there's great stuff in the book about blackmore he he was blown off by blackmore basically twice including at a party you took him to after a rainbow show in la and Blackmore is notoriously a difficult guy and notoriously people have had issues with him over the decades. But I never picked up on his love of Blackmore in his playing. And the way I take away from this book, I mean, Blackmore really was a big influence on Eddie. Am I getting that right? No, man, you're absolutely getting it right. You know, it's funny because I look at it, Eddie, uh, sort of 180 degrees I have to listen really, really closely to hear that Clapton influence uh, in Ed's playing. Obviously, Ed is not a blues player in the way that Eric was. Um, but, I mean, those, those influences are, are really, really subtle. When I, heard that, when I heard the first Van Halen record and I write about it, my first instinct was, oh, yeah, man, that's like Deep Purple, uh, you know, on speed. Those are the fast shuffles, you know, I, I, I had that same kind of sense, those kinds of riffs that Richie kind of wrote, um, you know, the vibrato bar, um, you know, and, and, and not that they're similar in any way, but, but I sort of got that influence instantly. The Clapton thing I never got, um, you know, Ed was also a, a big Alan Holdsworth fan. I mean, right. Alan is just, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, you'd really be hard pressed to hear Alan Holdsworth, but I, I, I guess, you know, the sign of a real inventive player is to kind of, you know, do their own thing. Steal the, steal the, yeah, steal the influences. Just don't let anybody recognize them, right? Um, but uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I got a sense of, of, of Blackmore. I also got some Jeff Beck out of his playing, although he says, you know, he never really listened to Beck, didn't listen to those first records, you know, The Truth of Beck Ola, which I thought are some of the greatest guitar records ever, but he kind of dug the, you know, instrumental blow-by-blow period stuff. So who knows, man? You know, and we talk once in a while, and, and, and I t- talk about it, about how deep was Edward's knowledge, not about guitar, because he knew everything about guitar, but sort of, you know, how deep did his knowledge of music go? And, you know, he, he, he would once in a while, you know, mention, you know, fairly obscure bands, Budgie, you know, and um, uh, he mentioned the spirit, not that they're that uh, obscure, right. but, you know, so, so his knowledge went, you know, a little deeper than, than kind of deep purple and cream, but I don't think it went a whole lot deeper, to be honest, but uh, yeah. yeah, man, yeah. interesting. It is interesting. And again, little tidbits here. You know, I oh, I love Women and Children First. It's, uh, it's you know, outside of the first record, it's maybe my favorite. So there's great stuff in the book about that. That was the, really the first record that had keyboards, even though people didn't really know it was keyboards. Um, but yeah. I've always found, first of all, the thing I didn't know was there's the at the end of in a simple rhyme there's that riff that comes out of nowhere that is so killer and ends the record and yeah. you talked to him about that and i had no idea that there was a, a name for that riff and it, it's called growth according to your book and but what's what i found interesting about it is when he originally told you about it he said i think it was supposed to go on the end of could this be magic or something and he said it was just a song that he hadn't finished. And Templeman said, "We'll put the riff on the end of Women and Children, and we'll finish it and put it on the next record." I, I never knew if that was supposed to be an, a part of in a simple rhyme or a standalone thing, if it had a title. But according to your book, he said that the working title for that was called Growth. Right. No, that's correct. I, I, you know, you know, you bring up these points, and and and, and part of me says, "My God, I wish I, I could have had an entire conversation just about growth and and the song," you know, and. You know, so many things that I just wish I talked to him more about. But no, I, I think it was just, and, and he would do that from time to time. The the very end of Jump, there's that little guitar bit that comes in. It's kind of like that little counterpart uh, guitar. It's hard yeah. to sing. But, but that was a separate song, you know, and, and you know, um, the, the keyboards for uh, 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 Dancing in the Street, you know, that was supposed to be a different song. Um, well, well, hold on. The crazy, hold on, Steve. The craziest yeah. thing was because to me, this is all as a as a music nerd and a Van Halen geek. Th- this is the gold in your book. Like little things, like he recorded his Lamborghini or whatever car, but the 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 guitar sound, the the sound of the engine was originally going to be in Jump. But yeah. then it, they ended up putting it in Panama. So that engine noise you hear in Panama was originally intended to be part of in the chorus of Jump. I know, man. I, I, I love that stuff, too. I love that kind of stuff. That's crazy to me. I had no idea. And, and in his voice, in these interviews, him telling you that stuff in 1983 or 84 is just crazy mind-blowing to me. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, man, I, that's so cool you, you picked up on that. I, I love that stuff, too. And when I'm listening to those interviews, when I listen to them, for the, again, I, I never heard those interviews probably since the day they were done. Um, so, you know, so, so me putting that on, and, um, yeah, I think I called up to 5150 
and you know, Ned, you know, like the interview says, hey, guess what I'm doing? What? Now I'm recording the Lamborghini, you know. That's going to be a jump, you know. And, and, and yes, years later, you know, um, uh, knowing that it wasn't on jump at the, at the time, it's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be on that song you have called Jump. I get it. You know, but, yeah, years later, hearing that, it's so cool. And the other thing I dug was, um, uh, you know, there's a bunch of Lamborghini guys uh, trying to figure out how Ed recorded it and that Ed pulled the entire car into the studio and this and that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, you know, I, I made a point of, you know, clarifying for any Lamborghini uh, enthusiasts yeah. how that was actually done because Ed had told me, you know. But, yeah, man, I, I love those little bits as well. And just real quickly, to your point, Eddie, um, uh, Ed also tells me at one point that they recorded a version of uh, In the Midnight Hour. Yes, Wilson for- Pickett. I, uh-huh. I did read that. That for yeah. I want did they actually record it? Yeah, and and again I try to remember. You know, Ed says, "Oh, I'll play it for you." For the life of me, I can't remember if I heard it, but it was certainly recorded. And amongst uh, Van Halen, you know, uh, nutball jobs, nut jobs. Um, that that's a big thing. That's like a you know some some Holy hidden grail. little gem that, that they've heard about no one's ever heard so well we um, know we know these archives are sitting there untouched and as wolf has told me there are shelves and shelves of tapes so if they ever figure out a way to start putting stuff out that is you know there's there's non-stop stuff but w- for the audience who again has not read the book the, eddie tells Steve, that they recorded a cover of the Wilson Pickett song in the midnight hour for 1984. Obviously, it's not on the record, but it exists. I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. The The other thing was, look, there's a lot in here about his relationship with his brother, which, you know, yeah. is his he, he obviously they're brothers and through thick and thin. Uh, he felt his brother should have gotten more credit for some of the things he did with stage design and what have you. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, he talks about how he feels about Michael Anthony. I love Michael personally. I love Michael in all ways. But, uh, you know, obviously there was a conflicted thing there about Michael's input and Michael's engagement in the band. I'm just moving quicker in the interest of time here. There's so much here. Um, sure. the, the conflicted, you know, conflicted feelings with Roth about his uh, his his. Uh, limitations as a singer but what he did lyrically and you know all of that i mean again that stuff that was in the templeman book that that greg renoff wrote and there's a lot of that stuff in there templeman talks about wanting to replace roth with hagar on the first record so there's all of this stuff that's really fascinating the the you know what i find steve in talking to van halen fans and guitar nerds is that they view the quintessential van halen record to be fair warning. And I never mm-hmm. quite figured out why that was, but when you talk to Eddie, uh, when you did an interview with him around the time of fair warning, he pretty much backs that up that he felt that was his groundbreaking record. Did you get that takeaway as well? Oh, absolutely, man. He, he loved that record. Um, uh, he was given all the time he needed to, to, to lay down guitar parts, man. There's tons of guitars on that record. Um, yeah, I, he, he was able to take more control. Um, you know, I, I think I asked him about one of the solos, you know, were you angry that day? Or that sounds like an angry solo. And he, he loved that comment. You know, I always had to be careful what I would say to, 
to Ed. I, I didn't want to go overboard um, because he hated that. And if I, you know, was underwhelming in the response, oh, Ed, that's good, he, he'd go, well, I thought it was neat. Didn't, didn't you like it? You know, his, this humility thing would come out in him, which I always found unbelievably uh, fascinating. But, yeah, no, Ed, Ed loved that record, uh, which is strange because the next record doesn't um, really kind of follow that. But, um, yeah, his playing uh, on that record is amazing. His writing was, um, it was darker. Um, I think that's maybe why people tended to, you know, maybe – um, not get the reaction of uh, some of the other records that were a little easier to to, to digest musically, um, but yeah, his playing on that on that record was uh, unbelievable, and he, yeah, he loved he, what he did. He talks about the fact that on Fair Warning he got a chance to do overdubs more than he's done in the past. Uh, that he worked the hardest on it. Just some notes I took down from your interview with him that it was his favorite. Um, you know, real, real interesting stuff. He also gives a lot. And again, this is not a surprise if you've read other Van Halen books, but he gave, uh, he gives a, he has a lot of love and really feels my takeaway that the secret weapon in Van Halen in terms of the sound and the records, he has nothing but respect for Ted Templeman as the producer, but it seems like really his guy was the engineer, Don Landy. I mean, throughout the whole, all these interviews, there's moments where he'll, there's moments where he'll say to you, no, don't print that now. But he also says to you, make sure you print that, where he wants praise to go to a guy like Don Landy. That's absolutely correct. Um, he, he loved Don. Don loved him. They were, you know, however they got together. Um, I mean, that was one of those things that was, that was meant to be, you know, I mean, Don was a master. You know, it's funny. Look, you can listen to Ed plug into a Marshall. He, he was, he's been over at my house, plugged in into my little deluxe with my, uh, you know, piece of crap, little 66 Strat. And it was Edward Van Halen, and it was a brown sound. And you could have stuck a microphone up, up in front of it, and, and, and it would have been good. But, but Don, you know, just, he just knew, man. He just understood so much. He loved Ed so much, and I think he just took such, such care to make sure it was perfect. Um, Don lived and breathed Edward. Um, you, you is, know, he still, were, is he still active at all in the business, Steve, do you know? You know, what did I just read about? Um, oh, I think Sammy had mentioned that they were re-releasing um, 5150 and uh, maybe another record and that Don was mixing. I, I, I don't want to talk out of turn, but I just saw Don's name um, associated with something. And I thought it was something that Sammy had posted. Certainly you would have known that better than me. Yeah. Anyway, but, um, well, they're doing, they're releasing the live record on vinyl and putting some extra tracks on it with, with, with oh, Sammy. That's what it is. I'm sorry. Yes. And, yeah. I, I got something to do with that. Yeah. I got to hit up Sammy because I would love to interview Don Landy. I don't know if he's open to that. I tried to interview Templeman when his book came out, but he would just wouldn't do press. But, uh, I would love to interview Don, especially after reading your book and seeing how much Eddie loved and credited Landy for all the work on these records um, and how important he was. The stories would be incredible. All right. Again, just in the interest of time, because I only have a few minutes left, the stuff with Gene Simmons being there before Templeman and bringing them to New York and doing these demos. 
There's something in the in this interview, one of the interviews you do with Eddie, where you talk to him about Gene and being involved early on. And he talks about Gene and Paul coming to see him. He talks about going up to a coin for management and a coin kind of big times them and passes on them. And that's when Templeman and Warner Brothers get involved. But really, it was with Gene bringing them to New York. First time he ever went into a studio. Eddie says in the interview, well, Gene was willing to pay for it, so we did it. All of that. But then there's a comment where you or him say something like, but Gene didn't really produce those songs, did he? And and Eddie answers something like, no comment. Can you allude to what that was about? Was Gene just more of a figurehead and not really hands-on? Or was somebody else in there that we don't know about? Do you know anything about that? I mean, that's a really good question. And I, I, re, I can remember that um, bit in the book. Um, I, I, I guess my, my, my question came more from a standpoint of, yes, did was Gene really producing? Was he... Um, Behind the console. The yeah, and, and was he helping with arrangements? And, hey, guys, cut that chorus in half. And, uh, hey, let's try this harmony here and, and this and that. You know, Because I, I never thought of Gene specifically as a producer on a, on a Kiss record. They had producers, unbelievably good producers. I thought of Gene as a you know, songwriter, singer, um, and bass player. So that, that's when I asked that. And when Ed says no comment, I mean, uh, I, mean I, I can remember it. I mean, yeah, to saying, me, no, no comment screams... That that there's your answer that I'm exactly. sure Gene, I'm sure because he also says, well, yeah, I mean, Gene wanted to try to get into producing, but we're talking 76, 77. And you know, Gene was still only a few years into the business himself, as big as Kiss was. So I almost feel like Gene with his business head on is like blown away by this band, wants his manager to manage him. He's going to get a piece of him, do a production deal, but he's not going to be the guy that's actually going to set up the mics and sit behind the console and all that. Maybe he brings in one of the Kiss engineers or whatever, and I just kind of read it like maybe somebody else really did that work, but Gene was putting his name behind it as muscle, which is great if that's how it went down. But there was a lot in, in that little no comment screamed a lot to me as a takeaway. Right. No, no. I, I think everything you're saying, Eddie, is, is true. Was there somebody else there that day when they were in the studio? I mean, it's certainly possible. I mean, there must have been some, you know, uh, some studio personnel, personnel there, you know, setting up gear, you know, uh, bringing out mics and stuff. Again, I think the band, you know, they I don't know how many songs they recorded over the course of a day, but they, they were so rehearsed. I mean, you know, they could they could they could run down an entire set with no mistakes. Um, you know, pretty easily. And Ed's sound was, was kind of right there. And, you know, the, the sound of the band was right there. Yeah. So I, I don't know how much producing w was really necessary. Was even needed. Was right. Exactly. Right. Was there somebody there, else there's there a, Yeah, I mean, there's a great, good. there's a great story um, about the band Angel and Eddie was at the <laughs> Rainbow or something and went to a party with the guys in Angel and played the first record before the first record is released and the guys in angel here van halen's version of you really got me templeman calls eddie and said did you play the record for anybody he says well yeah i was hanging with the guys in angel and he goes off on him because angel were going to rush into the studio and try to record a cover and beat van halen to the punch of covering you really got me which i don't think they ever did but i'm going to be talking to the angel guys soon i'm going to ask ah. them for their take on that but i thought that was funny 
oh, that was a riot, you know. And then I say to Ed, um, uh, I said, well, you know, would it, would it really have made that much difference, meaning if Angel had recorded it first? And he said something like, yeah, it could have. <laughs> yeah, what in the hell? Right. Right. So, yeah, look, anybody, anybody other than Edward Van Halen leaking that first record would have been, uh, you know, tarred and feathered and kicked out of town. But Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And then the the last thing is um, you ask him about Randy Rhodes, and that was always a thing. I mean, even among guitar freaks to this day, Randy Rhodes, Eddie Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, Randy Rhodes. I mean, sadly, Randy with a much smaller body of work to pick from. But he asked him, he had some, I think when you asked him about Randy, he said something just to the effect of like, yeah, nice guy or whatever. Not necessarily dismissive, but he does say that he felt like Randy lifted a lot from him, right? He kind of felt that way. Right, That that's what he said. Um, yeah, he wasn't dismissive, but yeah, it, it wasn't like overly right. It wasn't one with the other. Yeah, and he said, um, yeah, well, at least Randy's one of the guys who admits, and I, I don't know the exact word is, but, uh, you know, that Randy admits that he, you know, listened to me or lifted my stuff. You know, yeah, and that that, that feud went on. Um, you, you know, I've heard from people that, uh, honestly, Edward at moments didn't treat Randy very kindly. Um, I actually wrote a book on um, Randy Rhodes, though I'd never interviewed him. Um, and, and, you know, there were some different sources that I'd read. What, what I thought was interesting, um, and, and you, you may not have gotten to it yet, um, Eddie, unless you look at the back of the book, um, I have like a little oral narrative, um, you know, comments from other um, musicians and stuff about Edward. And um, uh, I had actually spoken to Ozzy uh, years earlier. This wasn't a specific interview for the book, which I was doing at the time when I was going to work on Ed's book. Um, but I had, I had spoken to Ozzy at some point, and um, uh, somehow we had gotten on the subject of, of uh, Ed. Um, and he says, well, you know, if, if uh, Eddie Van Halen had been in, uh, in, in my band and Randy Rhodes had been in... Uh, Van Halen, you know, we'd be talking a different story. I just thought it was an interesting thing to say that, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, Van Halen, I don't know, kind of was centered around Ed and, and you know, Ozzy was obviously Ozzy. I don't know. But but you're, you're mm. certainly right. The body of work that Randy produced was far less. Um, yeah. they, they were just different guitar players. I mean, honestly, I, I could never understand if Ed did have sort of a rivalry with rivalry with Randy, why he would have felt that way. Um, you know, cause he never seemed to be intimidated or, or honestly impressed by anybody. I mean, he had, he had guitar players that he loved, but it's never like, Oh, I'm better than he is or, Oh, you know, so that, that was a strange one. So in, in yeah. a reverse kind of way, I think that Eddie really did kind of admire what Randy was doing, you know, in a sort of backhanded way. You know what I mean? Yeah. And real quick, going back to being a kiss geek that I am, he had, there's a couple thoughts about Ace Frehley. They're not necessarily complimentary, but yeah. what he says, what he says is, um, what I really, you know, what's amazing. And of course we found out about this because Gene Simmons has later released it, but that he, that Eddie played the original solo on Christine 16. And he talks in an interview with you about, the fact that he was pissed when he heard that the, it actually come out like Ace re-recording it and the way it was produced, it wasn't doubled. And Eddie's going on to you about 
the way I did it was so much better because it was thicker, it was doubled, and then I heard it. And I, again, I just I just eat that kind of stuff up. And what's fascinating about it is, as a kid, I would I never would have thought. I never heard Eddie Van Halen in the solo to Christine 16, but now hearing Eddie talk about it, knowing he originally did that solo, it's totally Eddie Van Halen. Like you could totally hear him playing. You could totally hear how he structured that. Yeah, man, that is, that is so cool. I, I love that moment as well. Look, I mean, he really, uh, he really, he really liked Ace. I mean, Ace um, um, was somebody he listened to all the time. So, uh, yeah, when he was kind of, you know, goofing on Ace, it really wasn't, uh, you know, it, not like he was trying to put him down. but Right. Yeah, it was just a totally different kind of player. Yeah, exactly. You know, so Ed, what Ed did, he had actually played, it was two separate tracks, right? So he plays the first track, and then, you know, he plays the second track, the harmony or whatever that was. Um, what Ace did, what Ed explained, if I remember correctly, is that Ace just doubled it with a with a little box it's a doubler. In other words, you just play the one, the part one time and it automatically creates right. this guitar part. Well, it's, it's not as organic. It doesn't sound as live sounding. Um, you, you know, so I think that's what Ed was talking about. But that yeah, melody I, I, and I, that tone, that, that type of solo, when you listen to it now, if you're any Kiss fan knows the song, Christine 16, it was a single, but, but originally Eddie Van Halen and Alex did the demo on that and then one other song, I think it was from Tunnel of Love or something that ended up on Gene's solo record. But when you yeah. hear that type of approach to the guitar playing, that melody, the that it's totally Eddie Van Halen, but you don't put it together until you hear Eddie talking about it in the book. Steve, I got to wrap with you, man, because uh, I could talk to you forever and I, I'm, I'm out of time. But um, needless to say, believe it or not, folks, we just went for like an hour and change and i'm scratching the surface that's how much is in this book and it's all stuff that steve recorded with eddie van halen transcribed in this book uh, the book again is called tone chaser understanding edward my 26 year journey with edward van halen by the guy i've just been talking to for the last hour and change steve rosen steve in closing let my audience know where they can get the book if they want to pick up a copy oh this has been so freaking great Eddie, thank you so much. Um, if you go to my Instagram page, Steve Rosen Guitar Picks. Steve Rosen Guitar Picks. You can find it there. You can also uh, contact me, um, paypal.me at slash tone chaser. Paypal.me slash tone chaser. Um, and uh, real quickly, uh, you can email me, sc. Rosen, R-O-S-E-N, at sbcglobal.net. Rosen at sbcglobal.net. And uh, I can give you all the information again. Um, Eddie, this has been fantastic, man. Um, I would love to come back. And when you read the second half, it, there's some amazing stuff I know you'll, you'll love. And, and uh, I, I'd love to talk to you about that um, uh, at some other time if we could. Well, on my, maybe on my flight from Vegas back to New Jersey, I'll <laughs> get through the second half and it won't there turn into a night, a nine, 10 hour ordeal. So I got through more of it than I thought. 
But I, I look forward to finishing it off. I'll be in touch with you. And um, congrats on this. And uh, Steve mentioned on Instagram, if you, I posted about Steve being on today on my Instagram, and I did tag him. So for my audience, if you want to find uh, it really easily on Instagram, just look at my own feed, and Steve is tagged there, and that'll get you to him. Steve, congrats on this. Great talking to you. And uh, when I'm in L.A., I'll try to hit you up as well. That's beautiful, Eddie. Thank you so much, buddy. Have a great day. All right, you too. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, I could easily do another round with that guy because I've not even gone halfway through that book, and there's so much content in it. Steve Rosen is the author. The book is called Tone Chaser. It is available now, and Steve told you in the interview how to get it. My thanks to Steve for joining me. Thank you for listening to the podcast and uh, Joel Pollack for producing. Catch me on the radio every day, Sirius XM Channel 103, Faction Talk, talking rock with you live 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time or anytime on demand on the Sirius XM app. And uh, I'll catch you on the radio. Catch you back here next Thursday for another episode of the podcast. Have a good week. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.